Hello and welcome to The Mission. My name is Ravi Gurumurthy and I'm the Chief Executive of Nesta, the UK's innovation agency for social good. And on today's podcast, we have Jimmy Wales, who needs no introduction. He's the co-founder of Wikipedia, as well as Fandom and WT Social, a new social media platform. He's also a Wikimedia and Nesta trustee. And in this conversation, we had a really good chat about Wikipedia and what made it unique. But in particular, we got onto the toxicity of social media, which is something that is really preoccupying Jimmy. We talked about what kind of business models drive platforms to feed us content that keep us clicking and what the alternatives might be. We also talked about how Web3 and decentralized autonomous organizations might change that and what to do about misinformation on the web and the dangers of regulating the internet. It's a really fascinating conversation um, and I hope you get a lot from it. Jimmy Wales, welcome to The Mission. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Great to have you on. Um, Perhaps we can just start by taking it back to um, the reason why we all know you, which is Wikipedia, which is what was set up over 20 years ago now. Um, now, Lots of people probably know the origin story and how you you came about setting this up, but I wonder whether you just would just say how it came about. What were you thinking? How did you get it off the ground? Sure, sure. Well, I've been watching the growth of... uh free software, open source software, as most people call it, uh, and seeing programmers coming together to collaborate in new ways. Um, and that that process was really creating all of the great software that even today runs the internet. So um, a lot of the core networking software, Apache, Perl, MySQL, PHP, you know, all of these fundamental building blocks of the web um, were created uh, by largely by groups of volunteers uh, giving away their work for free under a free license. And I realized that that kind of collaboration could extend beyond just programming into all kinds of cultural works and had the idea for the encyclopedia. Um, and, um, well, I really, I, I thought, wow, this is so obvious that um, everybody's going to be trying to do the same thing, so I better hurry up and get started. Uh, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And so uh, the the first attempt was called Newpedia, um, which was, you know, the same vision of free encyclopedia and all the languages of the world. But I didn't really know how to organize an online community and so forth. So we created a system that was a very top-down, uh, seven-stage review process to get anything published. Um, and it failed. It failed because it wasn't very much fun, I would say, as much as anything else. I mean, I remember... I was frustrated with the slow progress, and I thought, oh, I I should write an article and go through the process and see what the problem is. And I had been working on a PhD in finance, and Robert Merton had recently won the Nobel Prize in economics for his work on option pricing theory, which I knew a lot about. That was what um, I had a published paper on that, and uh, started to write, and I basically had writer's block. I realized they were going to take my draft and send it to the most prestigious finance professors they could find. Um, it was very much not fun. It was like being back in grad school. And so I realized, hey, this isn't going to work. Um, it, we need to have a, an, an easier way to participate, a way that people can just get started. And so uh, uh, one of my employees came to me and showed me the wiki concept, uh, which had already existed for several years, a wiki meaning a website that anyone can edit. And so we thought, okay, let's try the wiki. Uh, let's let's do that model. And we really we got more work done in about two weeks than we had in almost two years. So it was it was a really uh, a massive step change. And when you think about sort of 
Wikipedia now, how many of those original elements that you you formulated at the beginning have basically stayed true and how much has it had to adapt and evolve? I mean, you know, it's really very similar to the way it was on day one. I mean, obviously certain things have changed, the, the software's improved and uh, our systems of control within the community are much more um, stable and enhanced than they were in the early days. I mean, in the early days, it was just like, come and, come and start writing, you know? Um, and uh, actually for quite some time, you could even just click edit on the front page of the website and change it. And, uh, you know, once we started to get popular, that became no longer possible. Um, I remember um, somebody once edited the front page and put a giant penis picture there, um, which, you know, I had to scramble to get off of there. And then we realized, okay, well, the front page of the website anyway needs to be locked, but let's stay as open as we can for as long as we can. And even today on, you know, 99 plus percent of the pages of Wikipedia, you can go up at the top, find the edit link, click edit, change something and hit save without even logging in. And it's live immediately. Um, now, obviously there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes with the community monitoring all of that, but it's still a very, very open system. And so when you think about almost like the key features, the design features of Wikipedia that make it amazing, why is it, well, firstly, what are they? But why is it so difficult to replicate? Why are there not more examples of Wikipedia type um, ways of working that are sort of pervasive more generally? Well, I mean, I think there's a few, uh, a few different things. So first of all, I think one of the crucial elements for Wikipedia is the the community, the strong community. Um, and it's a set of values and of goals and objectives <clears throat> that are shared by a large group of people uh, that we chew on and discuss all the time. I mean, even today, we're always uh, thinking about and chewing on how we're doing things, how can we do it better, and so forth. And that isn't a function of the software per se. I mean, the software has to accommodate that and support that. But it really is about that that community. And, you know, there's a, there's a few other things sort of, uh, I would say, uh, editorial policy. I mean, one of the things as we have seen social media um, struggle with, with trolling and bad behavior and so forth, one of the reasons, and I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to the, to the plight of most social media, one of the reasons is that they really are set up, you know, to say, you know, here's an empty box, right? Whatever you like, whatever you think, you know, and that invitation to do whatever you like means a lot of people are going to do horrible things. Whereas at Wikipedia, um, you know, it's never been a wide open free speech zone. I mean, we don't say come and do whatever you like. We say, look, we're trying to write an encyclopedia. And if you want to help, you're very, very welcome. But if you don't, you're you're going to get blocked. And And, you know, we have very low toleration for um, bad behavior. So, you know, things like, um, you know, in social media, when, when people are posting, I don't know, COVID misinformation, they've struggled with thinking about how to deal with that. Um, how do you distinguish between legitimate sort of political debate and nonsense, you know, disinformation, misinformation? And we just don't even go there. We're like, well, Wikipedia is not the place to advocate for anything, really. I mean, it's it's really it's it's an encyclopedia. But I should say, you know, actually, it's it's not just Wikipedia. So, Fandom is my for-profit wiki company, and we're something like the number twenty ranked website on the internet. You know, um, 
you know, hundreds of millions of page views and, um, you know, tens of thousands of editors. And there, you know, those communities are not like the Wikipedia community, i.e. it's not about uh, writing an encyclopedia per se, but there's still an encyclopedic or a, that sort of element. So like the, the big sites on, on fandom would be uh, things like, oh, I don't know, I just started, uh, there's a new episode of Ozark just dropped. And so there's an Ozark wiki, and it's all about the TV show Ozark. Um, and so there'll be, you know, a page on every episode, a page on every character, a page on all the actors, um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and even there, that what what is the same is not a charitable goal, but there's a community goal. There's, you know, it's like we're writing, we're documenting this TV show, we're providing a reference work for people who like the show and, and want to read about it. And so, you know, those communities will still say, you know, if you come on and you just start ranting about your political opinions, they'll be like, well, sorry, this is not what this is for. So you'll get blocked, you know, very quickly. So I think for me, that's a big piece of it is is really, um, you know, for spaces online where a community can have a particular purpose, then you begin to define standards of behavior that support that purpose. Uh, and it makes for a much better, much more human, tolerable environment than than just sort of random ranting. I, I must have been in a lot of um, meetings or brainstorms where someone said, "What we need is a Wikipedia for X." And, <laughs> um, you know, you must have probably seen examples where they've, you know, people have tried to create a community and tried to force it to, force it to happen. Mm. Is there a source of what's the what are the nuances around? how you you get a, a community to take off. I mean, you talked before about fun, sure. fandom, you've got a natural affinity with certain certain yeah. you know, certain things. But yeah, how, how difficult is it, that community building? I mean, what, what I think is, it's, it's, it, it goes to, I mean, there's many, many factors, many aspects, but one of them is certainly, um, you, if you identify something that, that people want to do, that they are, eager to do, but they're having trouble doing, and a wiki would serve them in accomplishing that goal, then you're much more likely to succeed than saying, um, you know, I have this uh, thing I wish were written. I'll just open a wiki and hope people come and magically write it. If they weren't trying to do that in the first place, then it's just not likely to work. Um, you know, there are other areas, I would say, you know, one one example that I've always reflected on is. Um, you know, if you think about uh, a lot of sports like baseball, baseball is, is the classic in the sense that baseball fans are really massively into the statistics of baseball, all the numbers of all the games and so on and so forth. Yeah, out despite, that, despite, despite living in, in, in America for six years, I never, ever understood baseball, Jimmy. So at some point okay. you can explain what the hell what the hell's going on. But yeah, I'll take your word for it that... Okay, we'll, Carry on. <laughs> we'll get together, uh, and and uh, in return, I've lived here for ten years, and I I can't make heads or tails of cricket. So, <laughs> all right, we'll swap. <laughs> um, no, but the point is, if if that that data that is a big part of baseball fandom is really much better served by sites that do data. Uh, so there's there's not really a wiki element where everybody can just come and and and. and Although people enjoy looking up and reading and debating the statistics, they they're not interested in coming and typing in the numbers for every single game. Like that's actually just boring. So, and it's already been done. So that's just one type of example where 
um, you know, I remember there was a uh, there was this concept. This is many years ago now, but they were going to crowdsource, and actually, crowdsource is 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 something I should talk a little bit about because it's something I love to rant about. They were going to crowdsource people checking security cameras. The idea is people could watch and monitor, and if you saw anything unusual on a security camera, you could click, and then you know if, if enough reports came in, then somebody could look. I mean, this is nonsense. Like, who wants to sit and watch security cameras? I mean, it literally, like, I was like. If there were a huge number of people who said there's nothing I really like more than sitting looking at an empty fence around a parking lot and waiting for something to happen, then great, give them the opportunity. But nobody wants to do that. And so that was a silly idea, which, you know, of course, didn't work. But um, crowdsourcing. So I, people love that term. And I always say it, it, I think it's a term that when you're thinking about communities and, and being able to get things done in a community, it's exactly the wrong approach. So crowdsourcing is basically, uh, you know, the word comes from outsourcing. And the idea of outsourcing is, you know, you've got some work you need doing and it's too expensive in your country to do it because your labor force is very expensive. So you outsource to a cheaper country um, where you can hire people for less to do the work. And then crowdsourcing is like the cheapest thing of all. Like you're just going to get people to come and do it for free. So you're basically starting with the work you want done and then trying to dream up how to trick people into doing it, basically. Um, and, you know, if you imagine, you know, you could say this about, uh, I always give the example, another, sorry, very American example, I'm afraid, but it does exist here, uh, bowling alley. So let's imagine you're running a bowling alley and you think, well, you know, actually professional bowlers make a lot of money. We can't really afford that, so we're going to start to think about how can we crowdsource the work of bowling. Like it's a very strange way to think about the problem. Whereas what you really say is, actually, what do people want to do? They want to get together with their friends and have a beer, and maybe they want to have a league and be a little competitive and and so on. And so we're going to provide a nice environment. We're going to set up the league structure. We're going to invite offices to come in and compete with each other and things like that. So as long as you so crowdsourcing starts with the work and tries to think about how to get people to do it. And I say that's upside down. Start with the people and what it is they want to accomplish and think about how you can help them accomplish that. Just coming back to sort of, I mean, actually, one of the things you're, we've spoken about before that you're particularly preoccupied right now with is social media. You said before that you had a lot of sympathy with um, some of the challenges that some of the social media companies face. Um, but we've all talked a bit about the toxicity of, of social media and the business models that um, yeah. exist and wikipedia is obviously a totally different business model involving donation but most of the platforms like you know twitter and facebook etc are based on trying to optimize the amount of time people spend on them and therefore they're yeah. likely to send you certain bits of content that's the incentive and that has quite toxic consequences for all sorts of things that we're now learning um what's your is your view that there are alternative business models that could be viable so, so yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. So, you know, the the idea is that if your if your business model for social media is advertising only, um, then there is a real drive to go down a certain path, and that path is to get as much information as you can out of people. That path is to get people as addicted as possible, so that they're on constantly. Whether it's good for them or not doesn't really factor in, and. Um, or factors in in a secondary way, i.e., you know, I've said this to people at, at Facebook, if 
you know, if people become convinced that you're destroying Western civilization, it's probably not good for your business in the long run. Um, but in the short run, it's very what, 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 do they, what do they say to that when you make that I mean, point? They're, they're, they're aware. Like they, you know, <laughs> I think people who work at Facebook um, are generally aware that there is a big problem. But I think their their struggle is around. Yeah, but we we really need people to be using the site a lot, and it turns out that the algorithms select for fairly unhealthy content in many cases because that's the most engaging in a very narrow sense. And and so you see, like with Wikipedia uh, and that business model, it's, you know, we don't really have any interest in people reading the site more and more and more, or clicking in as long as possible. Obviously, it needs to be popular and people need to like it. But the real business model, when it's donation only, um, is to say you've got to love it enough that even though you don't have to pay, you're willing to chip in to help out. And that I think provides a very interesting uh, sort of alternative possibility. So I have a project called uh, Wiki Tribune Social or WT.social, um, which is really a pilot project to explore some of these ideas. It's to say, okay, what if we built a social network and instead of optimizing for time on site and engagement, um, we optimize for having the best people in the community curate the best content um, you know, and, and look for the best sort of things to read and links and so on and so forth. Um, so it is still a pilot project, woefully underfunded. So if people want to sign up and, and voluntarily contribute, but, but my idea is basically to say, look, let's, let's start with what is probably a really bad business model, but that's how I've built my career so far. Um, and to say, look, we won't have any ads and we won't have any paywalls come and use the site for free. And if you want to contribute, then please chip in. We need money for developers and so forth. Um, and, you know, as a part of that, uh, sort of that project, I'm, I'm exploring all kinds of ideas around, you know, even for me, one of the things I, I'm calling into question is the concept of uh, social media. So here's what we think of as social media right now. My sister might post a picture of her dog on Instagram and I click like. And that's what social media is all about. And maybe I leave a comment, you know, like, wow, your dog has grown so much. That's pretty thin if we think about social, you know, that's, um, that's not particularly social. And what I started doing, and I think a lot of people did uh, due to lockdowns and, and coronavirus, back when, when it all started, we started doing a family uh, Zoom quiz every week. And, um, you know, we... We got on, so mom, dad, me, my brothers, sisters, and then obviously sometimes the, the grandkids poke their, their nose in and, and say hi to their cousins and so on. And we basically meet up every week and a different family member creates the quiz every week. And what, what that's meant is like, I actually see my family every week on Zoom. And I live here in the UK. They're scattered all over the US. So we weren't really seeing each other all the time. We have a family WhatsApp group, which, you know, uh, it's kind of all right, but like every family WhatsApp group, it's it's not ideal in many ways. And so, you know, I, I, I say, look, I, you know, one of my sisters who I hadn't really spoken to a whole lot for a, quite a long period of time, not because we ever had any massive falling out or anything. It's just, you know, our lives are different. We had kind of grown apart. Suddenly we're seeing each other every week and we joke around about stuff we did as kids and so forth. And I just went to, I saw my parents at Christmas and saw my sister and we went and looked at her new uh, business and so on. It's like I've reconnected with my family, partly because we have this rich weekly 
sort of hour that we chat and joke around and do do a quiz game. So um, what I've done there is I've got a, another pilot project called Quiz Night Beyond, where we uh, I've, I've created software to, you know, it's like you join just like you join any kind of video uh, thing, but the quiz is actually part of it. It's a game. So you join, everybody's on there, and then you answer the questions, and it's all sorely and gamey and fun. And the idea is just a place for people to come and meet their family and friends and hang out and joke around. And I think that for me, that's the kind of thing that I'm exploring that I think is interesting is saying, how do we build healthier places online that aren't really just driven at keeping you on the site as long as possible, but are more driven at how can we give you an experience that you think, oh, this is actually worth chipping in some money for. And are you optimistic about the metaverse in that respect, in terms of the degree of uh, interaction and the thickening of that social engagement? It's a very good question. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm never quite sure what people mean when they say metaverse, <laughs> for one thing. Um, I don't believe, I mean, I think a lot of the ideas around sort of virtual reality and, and VR glasses are uh, premature. I'm not really sure about them. I mean, I, I'm not the only one. This was widely mocked recently. There was some sort of a a VR demo uh, by a big retail chain in the U.S. I think it might have been Walmart. It doesn't really matter. Big retail chain put out this video of like, oh, what shopping will be like in the future in the metaverse. And it just showed like your hand and you're picking items off the shelf and shopping and going through and, and you, you see a robot clerk check out. It literally makes no sense. Like, why would anybody ever do that? Like, actually, if I want to shop online, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that the Amazon experience actually works pretty well. And other retailers, like, we're not thinking, gee, what I really wish is I could put on a headset and pretend I'm at the grocery store. It's like, well, I can just go to the grocery store. So I, I'm not sure actually where we're going with all that. But I do think you know, I mean, one of the things that I, I think is interesting culturally is, you know, I just told this whole story about seeing my family once a week and, and having a family chat and, and playing a game every week. But we could have done that. I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but at least five ten years ago, like the technology of getting on a video conference has been around for a long time, but people just didn't do it. I mean, maybe you would occasionally do it, but since lockdown, it's become really mainstream, like people are used to doing it. Um, you know, I mean, we, you and I are both in London, and we know each other. And uh, I'm on the board of Nesta, and you're the CEO of Nesta. So we wouldn't have done this podcast, we would have, I would have just come in, popped in the office to do it, right? We're doing it on remote, because actually, it's more convenient. And, and we're used to doing things this way now. So yes, yeah, so it's interesting how the kind of habit change drives certain opportunities for, for new kind of products, because lockdowns paved the way for certain types of interaction that might not have been viable before i mean just on this question of of donations so that the model is to try to potentially create um a sufficiently engaged process such that people are wanting to pay for it is that right yeah i mean i guess you know how you know how likely is it that you're going to get enough people to do that typically so with wikipedia um, I think one of the um, I was actually reading on Twitter because somebody had said how the Wikipedia request to donate almost defies quite a lot of the conventional wisdom on lots of behavioral science, which says yeah. you've got to tell people that nine out of 10 people donate and, and then you want to sort of conform to the norm. Yeah. Whereas actually, I think the uh, 
the Wikipedia um, thing, which I know you do a lot of A-B testing around and um, almost says that very few people donate, but it does give you a price anchor for how much you you probably should. But I think it's an interesting question, but can you get, you know, people, lots of people to pay money voluntarily through the right kind of, yeah, the right kind of uh, messaging? It, it is it is fascinating. Um and I, I mean, I don't know beyond Wikipedia. I don't know. I don't know if WT Social is going to work. I, I'm not sure about these things. But you know what? It is interesting. I mean, I actually find it very, very intriguing. And I've talked to some, uh, you know, sort of good people about this. And we do defy a lot of the conventions that have come out of research around behavioral economics, around anchoring, and things like that. I mean, we say things like, you know, we suggest a cup of coffee you know, three pounds or something. And that's weird. Um, and, and also we highlight how most people don't give. And I think what we've done, and it, it was not by any real genius, it was we kind of stumbled into it. I think what we've done is just be different enough that we've got a different sort of audience. Um, you know, like, I, I think there there are a bunch of people who actually are pleased. Like, I'm one of the few people who support Wikipedia. I feel quite chuffed about that. Whereas, you know, that that the other philosophy is to say, no, if people have the sense that it's the dumb thing, that you're supposed to give $20 to Wikipedia and everybody else is doing it and you're kind of annoying if you don't, that might be better. Who knows? It might be, but this has worked very, very well for us. And we've done quite a bit of A-B testing. I think it's a really good example, though, of you've you've actually got to study the particular context and behavior and yes. and, the, and things differ very, you know, you can't generalize necessarily. Um, but in terms of the kind of other business models, I guess the other version would be things like subscription models or, mm-hmm. you know, link, LinkedIn, where, um, you know, you've got a freemium model. Yeah. Is that something that you feel, again, sort of optimistic about and should be more widely used? Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, part of where I where my thinking went down this path was really initially thinking about, you know, what's gone wrong with journalism. Um, and, you know, a big part of it is they, you know, journalism now exists in an ecosystem that is driven by social media and that need to generate clicks. And so there's a real temptation at, in non sort of in, in advertising only journalism <clears throat> to say, we've just got to run clickbait. We've got to run whatever people will click on uh, and show as many ads as possible because that's the, that's what the environment is driving us to do. Uh, you know, if you think about, if you can, if you can have a, an intern who's really funny, write A clickbait sort of headline and a funny little article that gets shared virally that's going to probably make you as much money as an in-depth investigative report by a serious journalist that doesn't go viral. I mean, that still gets a lot of traffic, say, but doesn't go viral. And one is very cheap to produce and the other is quite expensive. And so I think that's been a problem. And I'm actually quite encouraged to see the rise of, um, you know, uh, both uh, subscription models, but also like here in the UK, The Guardian, still doesn't have a paywall, still doesn't have a subscription, uh, but they do ask for money the same way that, that Wikipedia does. Um, and that's been successful for them that, you know, they just say to people, Hey, while you're here, can you chip in? And a lot of people do, but you know, that's even there, the guardian is fairly unique. I think, you know, the term 
Guardianista for fans of the Guardian. This for a reason. I mean, and I think that they're, you know, people, you know, the, the Guardian has a particular audience, a particular brand, a particular legal structure, i.e. it's owned by a nonprofit, by a trust, that makes it a little more possible for them to do that. And I mean, it's working for them. And I think that's good because what what that really means in the end, whether it's a paywall subscription model or whatever, is now your incentives aren't just, you know, get people to click no matter what. It's actually providing a value that people think, hey, I'm going to pay for this. And there's a lot of, uh, you know, I think, you know, like the LinkedIn model is is interesting. It's LinkedIn's not journalism. LinkedIn's you might call it social media, it, you know, but it's social media with a very different purpose for most social media. It's not just a place to go and hang out and chat with people and show pictures of your dog. It's, you know, it's about business networking, um, which, you know, means that having a freemium model probably fits there better than it does in other places. But boy, I would love to see, you know, if Facebook found a way to make money selling something that people are willing to pay for, that could probably be very healthy for Facebook, you know, instead of just having the one option of, well, we just need to show as many ads as possible. So we just need to get people wound up and clicking as much as possible. And and nobody seems to have made um, the business model work whereby you actually pay per article or per view of a given thing, sort of a a penny per article, whatever. Yeah. Why do you think we've not seen those kind of models um, emerge, even though you have had sort of, you know, subscription models actually being quite effective. So I'm, I'm personally, I'm skeptical of that type of model. And I think, I think it doesn't feel right to consumers and, and, and I don't care for it. So for example, you could imagine if Netflix had the model, Netflix could have a model where instead of playing a flat monthly fee, you could just sign up and give your credit card and every, every, um, you know, every month they bill you based on how many minutes you watched. I mean, that technology would be quite easy for them to implement. I would find that very irritating myself because then suddenly I feel penalized. Every time I'm using the service, I'm like, this is costing me money versus the way I feel now. Like if I'm if I'm choosing what to watch and I'm looking on Amazon Prime and I'm looking on Netflix, I sort of go to Netflix first because I know if the show I'm looking for is on Netflix, it's going to be free. Now, obviously, it's not free. I pay my monthly. Whereas on Amazon Prime, some of it's free, but a lot of it you have to pay. You know, it might, I mean, it's like, you know, my kids are like, oh, we want to see this such and such a movie. And I'm like, well, I hope it's on Netflix. because Otherwise, I know I'm going to end up paying pounds to watch this movie. And so I just think I think consumers don't really have a strong desire. Again, it might go back to uh, sort of. Is that is are we solving a problem that people actually feel and have? I don't think there's anybody who's like, boy, I really wish I could pay a penny for everything I read online and have it add up. I think people are much more willing. And I, I, I especially think this is true when, when we think about a lot of the payment for journalism, I think, is coming from an emotional and patronage type of concept. So I think, uh, you know, a lot of quality newspapers in the US did very well under Donald Trump because people felt quite passionately that we needed quality journalism. So people were like, you know what, I actually probably should pay for the New York Times and I should pay for the Washington Post because, you know, if we don't have good journalism, who knows where we're going to end up. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's important.
Yes. I mean, <laughs> I think a lot of um, progressive organisations like the ACLU or um, journalists, or journalists did very well during Trump because there was just a desperate desire to protect certain things that were under threat. Um, just on just on this um, just on this business model question, um, I guess you know you're worried about the demise of journalism. I, I assume, therefore, that on debates on things like the license fee for the BBC, you'd probably be a, a defender of it. But is there a is there a case even to try and think about how you could use that license fee to support other media other than the BBC? You know, is there almost a need for more public subsidy mm. to go more broadly, um, given the, the kind of difficulty of others surviving? Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of a lot of problems uh, that are, you know, I, I think the BBC as an institution is pretty fantastic. Um, and, you know, their remit uh, keeps them in a good place. And of course, you know, we always see people fretting and worrying about bias at the BBC and, you know, uh, whether it's bias because it's all a bunch of liberal journalists um, or is it bias because the conservative government's going to put somebody at the top who da 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 da. And I think that that sort of thing could get a lot worse if, you know, and, and it's always it's always easy to, to think of the worst or easy to think of the best case scenario and not be worried about it. You know, it's like, oh, we can just set up an independent commission and this and that and the other. But I'm not sure that many people would really enjoy having, uh, you know, I don't know, pick your favorite authoritarian uh, in charge of doling out the money for journalists. And that's that very frequently does happen. I mean, we see in a lot yeah. of the, the countries where democracy has been severely damaged, it's in no small part because the government has managed to get their tentacles into media in some unhealthy ways. So I, I just I think we should be very, very cautious about that sort of thing. At the same time, you know, I do think um, thinking about ways, you know, what are some of the barriers that we've put up? What makes it harder for um, new competitive journalistic options to come into play and so on and so forth? It's I mean, there's there's a lot, lot of different angles and things to consider. There's lots of hype at the moment about Web3. It's hard to sort of mm -hmm. um, get through a conversation without talking about NFTs and, and, and Web3. One aspect of that is the idea of a decentralized autonomous organization and, and the idea that you could almost have smart contracts. I know you've thought a little bit about mm. how that could provide a, a new business model. And in, in many ways, that, that's recapturing the spirit of the earlier web pioneers that you came out of. Yeah. No, I, I think it's really fascinating. And, uh, you know, I've been traditionally and in general a bit of a, a minor skeptic about cryptocurrencies and. You know, there's a lot of speculation and nonsense going on, and and that's, you know, I'm I'm old enough that I remember the dot com boom, and so I know how these things go. Um, you know, people, uh, there's a new technology, people want to apply it in ways that don't actually make sense because they get caught up in the hype. But at the same time, I think there's some really interesting stuff going on. So, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting is around uh, sort of stable coins. So, a coin that you know, perfectly or nearly perfectly replicates the U.S. dollar or the pound or the euro, such that, and and then you can have actually in your web browser you could have a wallet with a hundred dollars in it that you could spend anywhere 
just by clicking. And it's all quite secure and all quite independent of any particular um, provider. So it's not like PayPal integrated in your browser that is a monopoly of one provider. It's actually just an open network system. I think that's really interesting and could give rise to some really interesting new and different business models, particularly around the kind of stuff we've been talking about. You know, could you, you know, tipping as a, as a model right now, if I wanted to, if I'm reading a blog and I think, oh, this is really good. I'd, I'd love to give this person $5. Well, that's a lot of trouble. Like it's not really ever taken off because it's really hard. But if it were as easy as my browser has a hundred dollars in it and I can just dole it out when I feel like it, that, that could be interesting. I don't know if that's going to happen or not. I think it's very interesting. And then as you mentioned the, this distributed autonomous organizations thing. Again, this is an area where there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of sort of overstating what is possible. But at the same time, there's something super interesting about it, um, about people being able to pull their money to accomplish things in new ways, uh, to have agreed sort of systems for sharing. Actually, one of the things um, that I that I this was said to me by uh, Ben Horowitz of Andreessen Horowitz, actually several years ago. Um, and at first, I just was like, I, I don't know. But now I increasingly see that it makes a lot of sense. So uh, the idea is like, uh, for, you know, some sort of a community project, you can actually have uh, tokens, uh, governance tokens, which allow people sort of voting rights, but also some kind of ownership in a project and the technology just makes all that easier to keep track of and that people feel the technology means it's independent like they can sell their shares and they don't have to actually depend on the organization etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's potentially a way of of rewarding early adopters in a community project or something like this so i'll, I'll just give an example that i don't know if this would work or not but it's, it's something i've thought about so years ago you know I'm, i was a a board member of Creative Commons, big advocate of Creative Commons and open sharing licenses. And I saw, you know, the growth of Wikipedia and all this. And I said then, I could see the possibility of uh, animation. So video animation, so cartoons, whatever. Uh, because, wow, the, a lot of that stuff is very strong appeal to geeks and geeks are good at computers and sort of uh, digital artists and so forth. And I thought, People, they can come together to collaborate because it's a huge project to create a Pixar level film um, is a huge project, possibly involving hundreds of people. You could probably do it with a smaller team if they're really talented and motivated and, and take their time. And I thought we would see the rise. I thought by now we would have at least one sort of feature length series that had come sort of from the culture of the Internet that was created by volunteers and was like worthy of watching. And that hasn't really happened, and I'm not sure why exactly, but I suddenly thought, you know, actually what part of what's interesting is if you did that, if you created something like that, it would be like any sort of high quality animated feature film. Think of Frozen, for example, as a very mainstream option. That's worth a lot of money, right? And it's probably would be very interesting for that same group of people I just talked about to say, you know what, actually, maybe we can't really afford the time and the effort to do this for free and give it away. Um, but we could do it speculatively as a group and we all get paid a share um, and the share is represented by tokens. And then when the thing is then licensed or sold to Netflix, 
uh, then we automatically, you know, the money goes into the smart contracts and flows itself. Now, you could do all that without smart contracts, but the thing that smart truck contracts enables is just to have a sort of a structure that's kind of transparent and obvious for people to think about that. And I think we're beginning to see some interesting things around that sort of thing. I don't know if we'll get to that exact idea, but, you know, so I think there's something really interesting going on with all this crypto and, and DAO stuff. Um, but it's too early for me anyway to know where it's going to end up. Finally, Jim, I just want to get you on to another of your, another of your, another of your concerns. I'm making you sound like you're a very worried person in this uh, podcast, but one of your concerns is, is about actually free speech. And again, it relates to sort of social media and journalism. And, um, you know, there's obviously increasing pressure on the platforms to try to regulate hate speech or misinformation. Um, but the question is, you know, who makes those decisions and how? Um, and yeah, just interested in, in your take on where that debate's going and, and, and what, what about it is worrying you. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I, I think a big part of it is, uh, you know, in, in this country, we have this um, online safety app, which is working its way uh, through the system. And one of the phrases that's been associated with that, which I think some of the main people backing it are trying to move the conversation away from this phrase is legal but harmful speech and what can the government do about that and that's i mean i think that's just a very problematic approach if it's legal speech I, then unless you're going to make it illegal because it's harmful which is opens a whole can of worms maybe the government shouldn't do anything about it and that you know that to me is very problematic and sort of stepping back and saying you know it's very easy again to imagine um sort of the best case outcome. In the best case, you know, we, we all put pressure on Facebook and they get rid of all the speech that I don't like and keep all the speech that I do like. Um, great, but the probability is just as high that they're going to get rid of speech that I do like and um, and allow speech that I don't like. And so, you know, that that is where we get into the to the trouble. I mean, certainly it's not hard to imagine you know, the, the full power of Facebook and all of its properties and all of its algorithms being put to work uh, in very subtle and, and, you know, I mean, think sort of in a dystopian way to get Mark Zuckerberg elected president, right? Which I think would be better than Trump, by the way. But still, it's not really a great, it's not really what we think Facebook should be doing. And so when we're pressuring Facebook to say, you should do something to shape the conversation better, I think that's problematic. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic to, to Facebook's plight. Um, and, you know, I think it's a, it's a very hard problem. I mean, one of the things that I, I would say, um, you know, here, here's the way I, I think about this, and I don't have the answers for Facebook, but, you know, if, if you know, if you've got, a, a, I use the stereotype of a crazy uncle, but I'm always careful to say all oh, my uncles were wonderful. So I'm not referring to any uncle of mine, but we all know the stereotype, the crazy uncle who says racist things at Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner and posts nonsense on Facebook. I don't think that's Facebook's issue, right? If somebody uh, is the sort of person who used to be a crank down at the pub and now they're a crank on Facebook and they post stuff that pisses people off, uh, you know, that's not really Facebook's problem. What is Facebook's problem and where I do think Facebook you know, rises to a different level of culpability is if as soon as, you know, crazy uncle Eddie posts his racist rant, 
it suddenly gets a surge of people arguing and debating and criticizing and the algorithm notices that and says, oh, this is engaging content and promotes it. And suddenly Crazy Uncle Eddie has 17,000 followers on Facebook um, and, you know, sort of calm, sweet granny who always is the word of wisdom has seven followers because she's not engaging. I think that's a problem. And and so, you know, it's like, are we amplifying the worst voices in society just in the pursuit of, of more clicks and more page views? But if you ask me how to regulate that, I find it very, very hard to know. Yeah, it's really difficult because there are obviously real life um, cases where that's had an awful impact. If you take Myanmar, where I think Facebook um, contributed to um, some of the, 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 the sort of the conflict there in a pretty negative way, because for exactly the same reasons you mentioned, certain things got amplified, enabled people to organize. Um, so the question then is, doesn't it have a duty to basically spot that that's what's happening and somehow moderate that or, or temper the the effect of that, that the, well, the way in which messages are amplified? I mean, I think they do, but I, I wouldn't, I, I would personally hesitate to, to try to impose that as a legal duty because I think it's very hard to define, but certainly they need to think about, and I, I would suggest people need to consider whether they want to continue to participate on a platform that's causing that kind of problem. But also I think they should consider that, you know, it might be very, very short-sighted. You know, if you go back to some of the earliest statements and visions around what Facebook is about, it's some pretty, it's nice stuff. I mean, it's the idea, uh, you know, and, and it is true. Like even now um, I decided I was going to, I'm, I'm trying to get my, the quiz sort of video quiz thing off the ground. And I, I've posted on a Facebook group for my, uh, it's basically my friends from high school. So friends I had when I was 16 years old saying, Hey, let's do a little mini reunion. We haven't gotten together in many years and let's, let's meet up and, and do this online. I went to Facebook because that's where I'm connected to all the people who I knew when I was 16 years old. And that's kind of great. It's kind of really like that's a positive thing in the world that you can connect everybody with everybody and you can actually stay in touch with people. That original vision for Facebook is still, a part of what Facebook is, and, and that's not a bad thing. And do you think there's a, a role to come right back to sort of Wikipedia for a community to somehow democratise some of those decisions about moderating content or even, yeah. you know, what algorithm to choose uh, and so on? So is that yeah. a way out for Facebook? Because otherwise they are basically, you know, we're, sure. we're leaving it up yeah. to Mark Zuckerberg to regulate content. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is for me one of the one of the more interesting concepts, and I don't again have all the the answers. And if I could lay out a complete sort of plan for Facebook, I would give it a try. But I don't know. But the idea, so with um, you know a lot of the contemplated regulation of the internet, most of it comes with a mental model that I I would call the feudal model of what internet properties are like, which is the master owns the estate and all the serfs are on the estate and sort of have to follow the rules of the master. And we're asking the master to do a better job of looking after everyone. Whereas the Wikipedia model is completely different. Like the Wikimedia Foundation doesn't make or enforce the rules. They come from the community. The community needs to be healthy. There is a, you know, there's a long history and a certain internal architecture to it all. But the point is, the decision making is really in the hands of the community and they do a good job. And 
you know, you can debate this or that particular decision, but on average, I think most people would say, actually, Wikipedia, you know, if you if you look at, uh, say, coronavirus misinformation, it's not been a problem at Wikipedia because we've got some really fierce, great people who are medically trained uh, volunteers or super interested in science who manage all of that. And, and that's worked very well for us. And so when I think about for, for Facebook, you know, the idea of, on the one hand, if we if we get rid of Section 230 in the U.S. and say Facebook is suddenly, you know, if they intervene at all, they're liable for all the content, they're likely to choose, well, we won't intervene at all and we're going to have complete anarchy. That's going to be horrible. The trolls win in that case. If we kind of force them to be stronger in their moderation, then it really is top down and what, whatever Facebook's editorial policy is becomes a policy for that huge, huge platform. Whereas I think the Wikipedia model, which is to say, no, look, actually, let's devolve as much power as we can to the best people in the community to control their spaces so that, you know, the, the, the algorithm isn't pushing the worst content. Instead, you've got the best people pushing the best content. Uh, I think that's just a better and healthier model. Now, obviously, it's very, very complicated for a platform as huge as Facebook and with um, as much diversity, which is, you know, like basically an infinite amount of diversity. Everybody is on there, really. But I think what's problematic is I think Facebook's business model does not push them in that direction because uh, a, a a platform that people love with all their hearts because it connects them to high-quality content might not be the same thing as a platform that generates the maximum possible ads uh, and ad use. And so that's where I think it's hard for them to move in a healthy direction. Yeah, what, I, what I'd quite like is to be able to also choose the algorithm in a way so you could potentially opt into something that uh, potentially yeah. shows you content that challenges your views or... A hundred percent. I've been saying this for years. It's like if I could, if they offered me an option one morning on Facebook to say, instead of showing you stuff we think you're going to like and engage with, we're going to show you things that we think you're going to disagree with, but that we have signals, other signals that it's of high quality. Would you like that? I'm like, yes, I would love that. Like, show me something that I disagree with, but that is of high quality. I think that's fantastic. Like, that's what helps me improve my own thinking and become a better person. Uh, rather than just sort of exploiting my own biases to keep me, you know, sort of clicking. And do you think there's any chance of that? Or does it again come back to this business model question that we started with, which is they're always going to try and optimise for for the amount of time you spend and they assume that that's yeah, not the best way to get that done? I think it's quite hard. I think it's quite hard. I don't, you know, it's, it's very interesting. I mean, I, I actually, I'm fascinated by um, TikTok as a platform. Because TikTok, uh, as far as I'm aware, but maybe I, I'm just not seeing it, um, has not had as much problem with uh, sort of COVID misinformation as other platforms have. But I think that's partly because of culture that the TikTok coming from China, I think the Chinese don't mind just saying, nope, and you're just <laughs> from saying that. Whereas probably Facebook takes a much more, well, people need to express their opinions view i'm not suggesting we should all become tiktok uh but it's, it's interesting because tiktok no one can accuse tiktok of not being addictive so uh you know i think there's a there's a lot of room to explore here i don't i don't know i don't know where we're going to end up
Jimmy Wells, thanks so much for um, a great conversation. Really enjoyed chatting to you. 